Welcome to the SaltWorks podcast. Today we've got Kid Swain going to be talking to us about his experience in the security industry and some of the things that we do here at SaltWorks. Ken, welcome. Glad to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great, great to be on. Good deal. Welcome. Um, so the first question I want to make a habit of asking this question of everybody that comes on is, and it's the question we all get in the security industry is, how did you get into this industry? And you know, do you have a few seconds of advice for somebody that's trying to get into the industry? Yeah, so I think the advice that I typically give has changed over the years. Back when I got into the industry, um, showing an interest in security was enough to get your foot in the door because there wasn't a lot of us. Now, we kind of have to, depending on where we're starting, whether from college or already on the job, we, we have different paths to take. But the, the same thing I think then that holds true now is show an interest in security participate in the local security groups. And anytime there's a chance to be involved with something security related, pick up the torch and do it. Um, that will get you noticed and fast track you to recognition and doing security day to day. Um, and, and again, now security is so broad, it's like, okay, which part of security would you like to do? True. So there's there's a lot, lot going on. But I think those hold true. Get involved, do presentations, do a bunch of research, and then volunteer at work to do as much as you can. Yeah. Um, and that will, that'll help get you recognized. I think. Ken, I completely agree. You know, it's, I, I think a lot of times it's just jump in and do something. It's, it's challenging. I think for young people to look at the industry as a whole and say, how do I get in? Uh, but your advice of jump in and do something. Cause even though there's, it's a huge world, if you can get yourself really good at one very specific thing in security and show people that you have passion. And I think that gets you right. noticed and you get in. In my early days, there were several people that I brought into security just because they showed an interest from the desktop or server level in anything. Right. And I looped them into projects and eventually moved them to security. And then they wound up specializing in something, right. which you know took them in the direction they wanted their career to go. Cool. Good deal. So kind of leads me to the, the second question is, can you tell us how you got into the space, kind of what your history is, how you got into it and uh, yeah. your experiences over time? So uh, I, I feel old saying this, but back in, in back in my day, um, we were there. Was you were lucky? Your your organization was bleeding edge if it had an IPS, right? So, being interested in security and a lot around penetration testing and just how things worked in network in the networking world, I got hired to do IPS deployments. Um, from there, I went to build PCI relevant programs and. That led me to knowing people and doing things that led me to HP. Um, so I was going to break in real quick. Just, you know, when you, we talk about PCI, I think a lot of us have been around it, been beaten up by it. You know, that's, of course, the payment card industry standards. Um, mm -hmm. you get, we hear a lot of talk about PCI as more compliance as opposed to security. Realistically, mm -hmm. it's a bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk about a little bit. Is that, you know, as you were building out PCI programs, do you feel like the driver was true security or was it was the bigger thing for them, PCI, that payment card industry standard um, and complying to it? And, may, and was it what was the balance there of true security versus, hey, we have this thing we got to do? Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of it, as we all know, it's there's this thing we have to do. So the guys right. who write the checks, that's what they care about. I took it as my job is to build a security program that met PCI. Right. Okay. Uh, so it makes sense. It was kind of, I'm going to build a secure program. I'm going to build a security program that's going to do the best that we can. It's just, I need to make sure that I'm covering the basis of PCI. And you'll find that if you do security well, you cover compliance. 
If you right. do comply well, you don't necessarily become secure. Good. Okay. Good point. Yeah, I just want to ask about that because I know that's a lot of us in the industry have uh, been affected by PCI over the years. The payment card industry works, so uh, it's always kind of good to get people's opinion. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, no, wor ahead. no worries. Um, from there, again, I went to HP uh, after the uh, WebInspect acquisition, which is near mm -hmm. and dear to your heart. Yep. Um, and at the time of the Fortify acquisition by HP, I kind of focused on the dynamic testing part of application security mm -hmm. and testing work. Um, and so there was an interesting split inside of HP at that time. So I, I went through the, the dynamic testing, the pen testing components, and then it took me to the evil world of sales. Um, where I went to work for for Sophos, um, and there it was it was interesting because at each step throughout my career I learned something. I learned something about um, working with teams and and trying to get things deployed mm -hmm. when I was doing network based stuff in IPS. Um, when I was building programs, I learned how to work with executives and make them happy, and then how to work with the individual teams to progress my interest in in the overall security program. At HP, I learned how to work with really annoying, no, I'm just kidding, uh, work within large organizations to make things occur, right. um, larger than I had been a part of at that point. And then at Sophos, I learned how all the teams cross-communicated because Sophos had their hands in so many things from firewalls to full disk encryption, uh, file-level encryption, and of course, endpoint security. And so by the time you're rolling out all of those things, you're touching so many parts of the organization that if you don't know how to navigate those waters, executives at each organization can kill your project and cause it to become a non-project. So, you know, it was an interesting um, time there. And I, I got to learn a lot about making teams, various teams talk to each other that I hadn't, hadn't had to deal with before. Cool. Yeah, I think your comment about HP and the the fact that obviously, it, I think at the time when we were there, it, at one point it was the largest or one of the largest companies on earth, um, mm -hmm. that navigating the politics of a big company and obviously then lots of different business units, uh, you know, as challenging as that can be, it also, I think we're seeing it a lot now as a, a provider, even though we're a small company, where we're working with very large companies and uh, different demands on developers and security people. And um, so I think HP was a good sort of forecaster for me of what was coming uh, of just, you know, right. customers and everybody has different challenges. We have, we yeah. have customers that make, you know, every, everything from vacuum cleaners to supercomputers. So, and everything in between. So it, it can be an interesting, interesting time. So um, yeah, and it's it, also interesting that, that the language between inside the same company, yeah. the language for each division is completely different. Oh, I got absolutely. to learn that at HP. Yeah. You say one thing and it means something completely different to these guys over here. It's like, oh, oh well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you've moved from obviously through different technologies, but you've also gone, you know, in 2010 when you were in HP, that was, you know, sort of the, the first real, you know, jumping in with both feet into application security. Um, and then, you know, Worked in a couple of other places, and now back with with Saltworks and 2019, working with application security again. Um, maybe some of your observations of what was different from then versus now. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time too, and it the world it's definitely changed. Uh, so I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on what's changed since say 2010 when you did it the first time to now. Yeah, so um, it was interesting back in those days. It was often, why do I have to do this? Mm -hmm. Right, like this, this stinks. I don't want to do it. Why? Why must I do it? Um, and 
it was really isolated mm-hmm. to only a few departments. Mainly, if you had an infosec department, they were the only ones involved at all. Right. Um, I don't want to b- bother development. I don't want to bother operations. This is strictly us doing it. And so dynamic testing was really the only way that you could kind of make that happen. And you had to find ways to get developers to fix your your problem or the problem you uncovered. And sometimes that just took a large hammer, which made security groups not very popular. Fast forward to today, and I think we can back up and and say all of the news around all of the breaches that have occurred have helped. Mm -hmm. But now it's how can we do this faster? How can we do this leaner? How do we integrate with our, our DevOps teams? Yep. And and the real focus has been moving testing earlier because back in the old days, we were just, we were doing it at the end. It was right. the things in production before we tested. And if we could get a glimpse of it before then, we were lucky. Now it's, it, it's we've talked so much about catching it earlier and that reducing the cost that, that we're shifting left almost to the point where we want to get the code in the developer's sleep, right? We, we, right. we want to analyze it before they ever even write it, right? right? So that's, um, and that's kind of where we're at today and, and really trying to strike that balance of understanding we've shifted left as far as we can, but how much are we impacting overall value and how do we assess the actual risk that's, that's brought to the table by these individual vulnerabilities? Because everybody wants to, say that a SQL injection is a SQL injection is a SQL injection, which is not really true as we know, right? I mean, if you've got taken a risk-based look at it, and I think that's where we're all going today, is a SQL injection on an internal app that's used by 15 people in one department that you can't even get to it if you're on VPN, you have to be on the internal network, and then you're behind two-factor authentication and all of these things, um, that's a much different level of risk it poses to the organization, then I don't know, a SQL injection published live on the internet where the entire world can get to it. Yeah. I, th- and I think I've seen too with uh, balancing the business risk of, you know, not just the security business risk, but the overall business risk. We have we have customers that obviously these applications that they're testing or they start testing didn't just show up one day. Um, they can have mm-hmm. millions of lines of code invested over decades and they start doing security testing and find issues. Um, obviously, there's always the question of, are they real? Are they exploitable? But once you get past that, there's also the balance of how much time are you going to stop doing something else that delivers value to the business um, versus how fast will you fix things? And sometimes that risk discussion comes into what's the risk to the business of not releasing an application or a new fu- set of functionality? Right. And that that does get to be a complicated, it gets to be more complicated. I think as security people, we've had this history of saying, well, if I find it, you got to fix it. Right. Um, and, you know, sort of running around with a big stick, as you'd said. Um, and that just, in the in a modern world where we're testing early, we're testing often, that just doesn't work. You, you really do have to right. take a risk, a holistic risk approach of, well, you know, if I can, if I have a thousand vulnerabilities today and I can release something next week with 500, it's not perfect, but it's better. So, mm-hmm. Don't let, you know, what's the old saying? Don't let good die for perfect. Um, right, right. And I think that's a that's a challenge for skinny people. I think we've been <clears> sort of grown up to say if it's critical, it, if it's on this report, it has to be fixed today. And it's a it's a challenging pill to take to say, maybe it's not going to be done today. Maybe it's going to take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, but have a having a plan and executing successfully is probably more important. Or and well, mitigating yeah. the vulnerabilities. Right. And, and it comes down to what are we going to do with it? Right. Because really, there's only 
three things that we can do with any mm-hmm. risk, right? We can accept it and go, yep, stinks, but here it is. Right. Um, we can defer it, right? Yep. So I can fix it. Right. Right. So and you can transfer the risk, right? And, well, I'll just get a bigger insurance policy. That doesn't, it's not what your customers want to hear. Right. right? That's, it's not, but we, yeah. we can do things to help mitigate that risk. Um, and a lot of times with application security, you'll hear people go, well, I don't need to worry about it because I'm behind a WAF. That has mitigated it, you know, to the nth degree. Right. It doesn't, right? We, we know that it only buys us a little bit of time. So we need, we need to still get it fixed, but how much time? Right. is really the question. I think you made an important point, too. I, I think, you know, with the, the recent breach at Equifax was, in my memory, that's the first real big one where up until then, executive management, you know, really above the CISO could arguably say, well, I trusted the CISO. They didn't do what they were supposed to. And they could that CISO could be the sacrificial lamb. Um, mm-hmm. That was the first time in my memory. I know there's other ones that are you know, I'm just not recalling, but where we saw the CEO, multiple business owners went down for that. So this attitude mm-hmm. of, oh, it's the CISO's fault and responsibility and they'll get fired. Um, I think those days are ending quickly. And they were seeing that more and more where, um, and you see CISOs, you know, requiring business risk acceptance from business owners. And mm-hmm. so now it's a better approach, um, which I think it's a good thing. I mean, as a, as a customer and, you know, somebody uses these systems as a, as a customer, I, I, I want them to take security seriously. Just like when I buy a car, right. I want the folks that design the safety belts to do a good job. Like, it, I don't, I don't really care who has the risk. I just, I, I want it to work. <laughs> like at the end of the day. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a good thing. Well, good. Um, something we, you know, you've worked in a little bit. I wanted to uh, talk about quickly. Uh, we talked about, you know, kind of risk and a risk-based approach to things. I think another thing I'm seeing over that's more perceived now. Um, is the concept of executive visibility. So as an executive, as a chief security officer, as a CEO, um, certainly as a head of development, you want to understand what kind of vulnerabilities do I have and where are they at and, you know, am I fixing them, those kinds of things. Um, And I've seen people try to use uh, GRC systems, governance risk compliance systems, which are you know, traditionally network security or uh, I would call it more operational security type devices where there are a list of things that are in production today. we got to go fix them. I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of what have you seen people using shortcomings of those, you know, things that burn them, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, visibility is, is important, right? So executives, unfortunately, their time is tapped so thin that we really, we really have to get their attention and show them what they need to know mm-hmm. and need to make decisions on quickly, which is a much different conversation than when we have it with a, a leader in the development department, right? right? They, they need to know where it exists and things like that. And, and the executives, depending on what they do, might have different needs. And a lot of the tools, you know, take GRC. The two whipping boys for failed projects inside of security are GRC and SIMS. Mm-hmm. They just fail um, more often than than what we would like them to do. Right. And part of the reason is is that we try to look at those tools and modify them in such a way that they're the end all be all, push the button, make things happen. Yeah. Well, the, if you do that, if if you try to make them that, 
they weren't originally designed to be that way. Mm -hmm. So now you're not getting the initial value that you wanted out of the tool and you're expecting it to do more and your executives are are still not getting the visibility. Right. So it's led a lot of people to do various tricks, I guess, to get that kind of visibility. And and I've seen that fail more often than not. Um, You really need a tool that focuses on development as a whole and information security inside of development and the reporting structures that need to be in place so that a, a manager in the, of the of a development team understands where vulnerabilities lie what they need to go address right this second what's going on versus what uh the cfo might want out of the tool right, right. It, those are going to be way different and it needs to be able to scale along that path to give the information to who needs it right I think you know we've got a we've been working on our, a product called SaltMiner, which kind of aggregates vulnerabilities and and compliance. Um, and one of the reasons we're doing it and what we're, our goal is is to give that kind of insight um, because a, a defect, you know, a vulnerability ultimately is a defect. A, vo- a defect in development is radically different than one in QA or pre-production or production. Um, if it's in development, then the developers need to understand it, but it's a bug. They get bugs all right. day long. They fix them. That's just the life of a developer. Um, if it got to QA, there's sort of an assumption of, hey, the developers maybe think this is okay. So now we need to pay a little more attention to it. Um, if it goes to pre-production, that's effectively that development team asking to ship this thing into live production, and security is going to get involved at that point. Mm-hmm. And if it's a production, you have risk, you may get hacked, breached, sued, all the bad things. So you know they they, they bring different levels of priority based on where they're at, and uh, that's one of our goals with some of the tooling we're developing is, to give that kind of visibility, because right, GRCs um, they weren't designed to do that. So it's you know sort of the if everything if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail situation. Yeah, right. and, you know, that's not the best way to do it. I think it's I think right. it's unfair to GRC administrators or you know, people are implementing those programs to ask the, a solution to do something it just wasn't designed to do. I mean, it, right. use right. it like it was designed to be used, and it does a good job. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's like ERP in that. In right. that aspect, right? There's a lot of businesses that, that hack together some, they buy a good solution and then wind up destroying it by trying to make it do everything. Right. It just was never designed to do it. Yeah. So good. Well, the last topic I wanted to get on, and uh, this may take a few minutes of, of, our, of our talk, is um, <laughs> the relationship between Security Operations Center, you know, SOX, and application security. You know, like every, everybody that watches TV and they see some security people monitoring, they see the, you know, people sitting in a room with all the big monitors and the flashy light things and it looks cool. Um, you know, that's a, that's the security operations center. Obviously, it's not as sexy as that. It's typically a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of computers reading a bunch of logs, trying to figure something out. Um, yeah. That as you know, that and application security traditionally have been very, very far apart from each other to the point that a lot of times, you know, the AppSec person can just go, yeah, they're in that room. That's the extent of the integration. Um, in, in light of things like DevOps, where the application and the code and the virtual environment, like a Docker image, are all deployed as a thing, um, and you're using testing tools to reduce the numbers of vulnerabilities, or I'm sorry, reducing the, the uh, opportunities where errors occur, so somebody sends in bad input, the application manages that input as opposed to throwing an error, which it traditionally did. It kind of like I'd like to get your thoughts on you know that what the SOC does, um, what vulnerability, you know, when they see attacks coming in, 
um, and how the changes in application security are going to have affected that. Because I think that's something people yeah. are talking about, and I think it's sort of a challenge right now in the industry. Yeah, I, I mean, it, when, you, when you go to look at it, it developers write their code to produce logs typically so that they can debug it. Right. Right. And and when you're on the operation side from a security perspective, it's your job to take errors given by your various systems throughout your environment mm -hmm. and correlate those together to go, what's real? What what do I need to stay up and worry about and what's not? Mm -hmm. Right. So um what can I throw away? What garbage can I throw away? And then if there's an unknown area, then a human has to look and make the decision. Right. So with proper coding, when you're, when you're doing development correctly and you're catching things as early in the pipeline as you can, mm -hmm. um, you have less errors. So your program is going to generate less errors, less buggy code right. to a developer. And that's really what they care about. Well, from an operations standpoint, I need to know, not only was there a invalid data submitted to a form field, but I also might need to know what that data was. Is right. it just a, is it a garbage string or is it, is it somebody actually just, we're not accepting the right thing, right? I need a human needs to be able to look at that and go, yes, that was, that was an encoded SQL injection attack or eh, somebody just fat fingered their name, right. right. And, and put invalid characters in there. Humans have to make that decision because computers can't today. Right. Um, so there's that challenge. How do we, how do we get, get to a, a happy medium where we're getting what we need to make operational decisions, mm -hmm. but we're not overloading the system and turning our SIM into a log collection agent. That, right. That's all it does is logging. Right. Um, and I think that the real, the real issue there is producing use cases that are effective. And to do that, we need data from lots of different locations. So one of the things that, that over the years I've seen fail to go into a SIM is our vulnerability data. Mm -hmm. What was our last vulnerability check? What, what, what was found? That needs to be in the SIM because that's going to help correlate the information I get from other systems. So if I know that, hey, in production, I've had to accept these flaws because we've got to get this application out there, and it's these particular vulnerabilities that might exist in this application. We've got mitigating controls in place, but these are what we're facing. That needs to go into the rule in the SIM so that when something occurs that's in one of these areas, I need to pay extra special attention. Right. Maybe I need to send certain data to save lists so that – then that can be correlated to, to other events coming in. And I need to get a really good view of that. Um, and that's where we fail at a lot of times is even producing the use case that would even tell somebody that we need that kind of information. Um, and, and much less getting somebody to understand what that is and to give it to us. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we work with developers a lot. Um, and one of the things we work with them on is helping them understand what they should log. So as a developer, you've got, you know, you have, you, you need to log it. Well, now I was a developer most of my life. First thing is as a developer, I want to log is when something bad happens or when some process, you know, there's, I want to understand, is my application running correctly or is it having here? So that's one kind of log. And then there are, of course, error logs, something I didn't think of crashes. I want to know that. Um, then there's performance logs, like how fast are things running and, you know, and am I running out of memory and as developers, you know, the, the more experienced a the developer, they start thinking about more of those things. Um, but a lot of times we don't think of as developers, and that's one of the things we talk to developers about and try to get them is when something odd happens, 
So when that weird chunk of data comes into a form that's supposed to be a, you know, a last name and it's a thousand, thousand characters long, well, that's weird. Right. The developer may go, oh, it's just bad data, you know, filter it, but telling them, no, when, when things that unexpected things happen, let's log that. That way, because really ultimately the detection of hacking and, you know, you've done a lot of dynamic pen testing, you know, sort of ethical hacking kind of work, you know, I've done that. Um, we all kind of know that you know, 99% of the time you're spending just sort of probing the system, poking around mm -hmm. to see kind of what happens, uh, you know, what looks interesting. And then when something interesting happens, you go hack it. Um, so if the developers are logging those interesting things when they occur, you know, somebody sends in a big chunk of data, that's something that a sim potentially could use. Um, mm -hmm. And we also have to keep it, you know, Getting them to do that now so that as years go on, maybe, you know, and maybe the systems that we use today aren't very good at detecting that. But as time goes on, we that does give us the opportunity to tune them. Uh, whereas if, right. you know, I, I found if, if developers don't put that code in their application today, then it'll never be there and you're kind of flying blind, um, which is a, a challenge. That's, you know, something we're, we're looking at a lot um, right now is. What are the best practices there? How can you filter out the noise from real events and um, to try to make it as actionable as possible for that, you right. know, that, that person sitting there in their operation center, you know, on that event correlation system, their SIM can go, oh, that's something bad. I need to deal with this. Yeah. Go deal with it. And, you know, and, and aggregating that with, you know, where did the request come from? When did it, how fast was it coming in? Um, right. All those things. Did the request happen in three three different locations within a tenth of a second of each other? Right. Uh, that's an, yeah. 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 It's like, oh, look, he's, yeah, they're doing these bad things. So, yeah, that's that's an area I think um, it's for me with application security. There's always been this gap between security and development. And as application security professionals, we're bridging that gap. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think one of the areas that I think they're the most work to be done in an area we're looking doing a lot of looking into is uh, linking between the application security engineers who work with the developers to make sure that you get the data that the operation center teams need. And how do you, how do you use those operation center software things that, you know, are supposed to detect attacks? How can they do that well in, an, in a world that's built out of applications? Because um, right. they really, again, I don't, I don't think a lot of those log correlation SIM type systems were really designed for a modern world where applications run in containers and they run on cloud environments. And, you know, you can't say, you can't walk in a room anymore and point to a box and say, this is the finance that system. The finance system right. is some stateless application running in a cloud somewhere, but it's still under attack. And the, the key there is that they were not designed for that. Right. They were designed in the world to where an antivirus gives me this kind of log, an IPS gives me this kind of log, a firewall this one, and a system this one. Right. And that's how they were designed. So again, that's where that that use case comes in. Right. We can all of them just about have the ability to write your own collector. Right. To collect any log you want. Right. But oftentimes, again, I keep going back to this one, we don't build our use cases so that we wind up going, give me everything. Right. And I really don't need to know if the application, you know, it took me three tenths of a second to run this query on the database where every other time it's been taking me a tenth of a second. That might be useful down the road, but right now that's, that doesn't really tell me that there's something going on other than high system utilization. Right. It doesn't give me a lot. Yeah, and I think that's where the, the balance there is. How do you intelligently filter 
So I'd almost rather a developer mm -hmm. give me too much and let me throw oh, away. You know, and, and largely it's, it's, I put this on security, not the development world of, as a developer, I would say, okay, what do you want me to log? And honestly, I don't think there's a great answer for that today. Um, so I'd ask, I would ask for more versus less um, and then let us filter. You know, throw away what you right. don't need. That's fine. Over time, we'll get better at this. So good. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. That, that was my last question. I appreciate you jumping on uh, the, the Zoom meeting with us, and we're going to be you know, putting this out there as our first podcast. Um, if anybody's got any questions, they can reach us. You want know, to give out your email address? I'll give mine. And yeah. Ken at saltworks.io. Feel free to ping me anytime. Great. Thanks again for joining us. And if you want to send me an email, feel free to. I'm Dennis at saltworks.io. Thanks again for joining us, and have a great day.